Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Would you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21? Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, our hearts are open. Send your spirit. Change us. Soften us. Make us vulnerable to your leadership. And we pray that I will not get in the way and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. And the beginning is the word never. In the Greek, it's not anyone or no one. And so in the Greek, literally the first statement reads this way. No one evil for evil pay back. No one evil for evil pay back. So the meaning is clear. Men who write books commenting on scripture say that Here, beginning with verse 17, it is the Christian's relationship with the world that the Apostle Paul is addressing. Now, to understand why they say that, let me read to you the previous three verses, all right, to our text. So this is the verses right before. And those verses say, beginning with verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And so that section begins with bless those who persecute you. And commentators point out that persecution is what is done by the world, not by other Christians. And so verse 14 must be an exhortation and command concerning how the Christian relates to the world. But then they say, verses 15 and 16, turn inward, turn backward, turn to us, and how we relate to to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this because we are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, which has had a special poignancy to us this past uh, year, really, with Adam, with the loss of Joe, the loss of Charlie, a number of things that 
have caused us as a church to mourn. And so we've mourned with those who mourn, and we've rejoiced with those who rejoice. And then you'll see that it moves on and it says, what we're to do to one another. Well, you know that any time the New Testament in the epistles refers to one another, it's almost the same as saying Adelphoi, which is Greek for brothers. It's, it's referring to in-house relationships, one another. And so, yeah, we know that both of those things tend to be focused inward on the church, right? And yet, limiting the verses that we just read as our text this morning, limiting those verses to the church's relationship to the world and declaring that the attention of the Apostle Paul turns from the intimacy of Christian relations to one another, to Christians' relationship to the godless and to the world, this is unfounded. Our verses this morning give no hint of excluding the people of God in the church in their attention and direction. Now, note I said excluding the people of God, the church. I did not say these verses exclude those outside the church who do not believe and are not brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, surely almost all of it is inclusive of all who do evil to us and all our enemies and those enemies, are you ready for this, are both inside and outside the church. I hate to tell you. And of course, at this point, I just want to laugh and go home. Because, you know, it's one more of these examples of where I say something that's really deep and profound, which is that the people of God view one another as their enemies. Starting with marriage. Starting with your parents. Starting with your brothers and sisters. So once again, I say, there is no reason to exclude the people of God, the church, from the commands we're given in our text. And there's certainly no reason for excluding our relationships with the world. But you know something? I'm fixated today on the relationships of the church. And this, for good reason... In other words, this morning, this sermon has a context. (laughs) The sermon. Just as the Apostle Paul had a context. You say, oh no, are we as a church dividing? No, no, not at all. I'm working hard to keep it that way. And you say, well, is there a particular problem? And I say, no, uh uh-uh, there is not a particular problem. And you say, well, what are you talking about? And I say, there are particular problems. In other words, churches are always filled with conflict. Limiting the verses that we've read here to the relationship to the world and declaring that the attention of the Apostle Paul turns from the intimacy of Christians' relationships to one another, to Christians' relationships to the godless, is completely unfounded. 
These verses give no hint of excluding the people of God in the church in their attention and direction. So now, let us listen to our text once more, thinking carefully about not whether there are those outside the church who are enemies, but rather whether we do not struggle with these things concerning our own husbands and wives, our own sons and daughters, and those in the sanctuary with us this morning. So, in other words, with some honesty and self-awareness, uh, let's hear it again. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I've told the pastors, and I don't know, I might have told you too, that the previous church I was at, they'd lost two to 300 people in the years before I got there. They were just hemorrhaging people. And when I got to my office the first time, I picked up the phone receiver, and underneath it was this little piece of paper, and printed on it was, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And I, that gave me a picture of what that church was like. Right? Every time he picked up the phone, he read, be not overcome with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. It's very sad Really, it's almost pathetic how eager we are to relegate these commands to those we have little intimacy with. Copying the posture of equanimity and brotherly love being our pervasive posture toward our family members inside the home and the church. (laughs) Why we would never be tempted to pay back evil for evil to those in the church. My God. Goodness, what does the Apostle Paul think the dear brothers and sisters of the church in Rome are like? Does he think they hate one another? Does he think they are bitter against one another? Is he so much of a misanthrope himself that he suspects others as being as hostile to humanity as he himself is? I mean, Christians wanting to do evil to one another. I find this shocking. Absolutely shocking. And beyond doing evil to one another, does the Apostle Paul really think the Roman Christians and those of us here today in Trinity Reformed Church desire to take vengeance against one another? I mean, really, vengeance? Maybe some of those who used to be here, who have left angry, want to take vengeance against us. But you know, it's not really us they want to take vengeance against. It's our elders and pastors. 
They're the ones who have people doing evil to them, if you notice. And so maybe that's why the Apostle Paul was going on about this to the church in Rome. He was a pastor, and he was speaking to the pastors and elders of the Roman church because they were the ones who people hated and did evil to. And so they were the ones who were tempted to take vengeance against other believers. And maybe those who had left the church in anger, right? As you get older, you have trouble turning pages. <coughs> Excuse me. I continue. You know, <coughs> now that I think about it, Maybe he's speaking to those who were taking vengeance on the elders and pastors, actually, you know. That would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? As they see it, the elders and pastors done them evil. And so they get their pound of flesh from the elders and pastors by saying their former elders were dictators and authoritarians and liars and manipulators and that it was their elders who caused the death of their children by not accepting them and their children just the way they were and all their sins and schisms you know the more I think about it it could go either way couldn't it People who are admonished by the elders might want to do evil to those elders and take revenge against them by lying about them and slandering them and hating them and being bitter against them, spreading their bitterness to many, many others. While the elders themselves might want to do evil to the people who are slandering them and being bitter against them by taking revenge themselves as these others are themselves taking revenge. I mean, come on, guys. You're frustrated because I'm like jumping all around. Anti. (laughs) Should be a word. But why am I doing that? Well, I'm doing that because we are all squirrels. And we will find every single path we can take to escape this text, these commands applying to us. There is no end of ways that we can escape conviction by the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. So I'm going to continue as this devil's advocate, this, this, this voice, all right? But one thing I know for sure, it's all an officer thing. If our elders and pastors just left us alone, none of us would be hurt or get angry with each other. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) You know, we wouldn't get angry with each other if they just left well enough alone and not try to be busybodies. The elders and pastors are the focus of people's anger and bitterness, so take a guess who's responsible for anger and bitterness. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Where there's smoke, there's fire, you know? Just saying. But 
But yes, I suppose we ought to do what Paul says and not repay the elders evil for the evil they have done and said to us. I suppose we should be patient with them. We're sure they mean well. They're doing the best they can. They just don't know the whole story, you know. They listen to the wrong people. They think the wrong things. And you know, they themselves have grudges. And really, though, we should not expect them to be perfect. You know, some of my best friends are elders. Come on, guys, laugh. It's funny. I'm talking to a guy this week. I knew what was coming. A friend of his was a pastor, and he'd known this guy for many, many years, since they were in high school together. And this friend called me and asked me if I'd talk to this man. He needed encouragement. So he's a pastor. And so a couple of days later, we were able to talk. And so I asked him a little about his life, about his marriage, his children, his history. And he's in a church he's been in for six years. It's down to like 50 people. He lives in a manse. And if you don't know what that means, he lives in a house owned by the church, which means the church has to pay him even less. And he gets no equity. Are you all with me? And so he has, he has nothing. Nothing. And the elders don't stop tormenting him. He can't preach right. He doesn't do anything right. And as he talked about this, he began to say, I should have known this and I should have required this percentage of votes in my favor and I should have not gone to a church if any of the elders voted against me. You know, these kinds of things that we think will protect us from the sins of our congregations. And I told him, I said, no, 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 I took a church. All the elders opposed me coming. And I only got 76% of the vote. And I would do it again. Because you live and die by God, you don't live and die by the majority that you have. But what I knew he would say eventually and so I let him say it. I didn't beat him to the punch. It's sooner or later, after half an hour, 45 minutes, it comes out that it was the elder that was most encouraging to him to come who has been his biggest opponent. And you just think about the endless conflict that there is among the people of God. Of course these commands apply to us as God's people. They apply, are you ready for this? Fasten your safety belts. They apply to Caleb. Now you might wonder why I'm using Caleb's name. Well, I'm looking at the white dignified head back there. And I'm thinking, but 
he's a pacifist. <laughs> you know, Caleb is a pacifist. Surely Caleb would never be tempted to pay back evil for evil. I mean, the man is equanimity personified. Have you ever seen Caleb mad? And yet Caleb himself has temptations to pay back evil for evil. It is an innate instinct in all of us. It's not just mothers in protection of their children, jealous for their families. Caleb has to struggle against being angry. And so I'm not singling him out because he's particularly bad. I'm singling him out because Caleb on this is particularly good. But we all know that Caleb is tempted to return evil for evil. Okay. And so what we all have to do is just... Oh my goodness. Just stop it. Stop thinking about me. Stop thinking about anybody but yourself. Look at your own propensity to return evil for evil. It's innate. It is, it is the human condition. Now, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth, watch yourself the next time you get behind a wheel of a car. Okay? The nicest people, when they get behind a wheel of a car, you know, I would use myself as an example, except I don't think anybody would hear, would say I'm the nicest people. <laughs> but the nicest people get behind a wheel and they turn into a monster. The nicest people, when they come to a roundabout, all of a sudden, you, you watch them, you will see horns coming out of their head, fire out of their, I mean, they're just like wacko. Why? Well, because some little old lady didn't grow up in Massachusetts. <laughs> and she thinks it's polite to stop at a roundabout, you know. <laughs> in fact, I would say everybody in Bloomington thinks it's polite to stop at a roundabout. <laughs> and what I notice in myself is that when I'm behind somebody who stops at a roundabout, if I don't honk my horn and ride up on them, you would not believe how superior I feel afterwards. I mean, this is a victory on the order of Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho. I mean, I observe myself and I think, well, where did that godliness come from? Listen, the reason I'm saying this to us is some of the most aggressive people on the face of the earth are butch old women. And where does that come from? Life is over for them. Why would you be aggressive when you're 80, 70 years old? 
And then you go to little kids that have just gotten their license. By the way, all of you, I want you to know that just happened with Josiah, so watch out. People have just gotten their license. It doesn't take them long before they learn the real rules of the road. And listen, all of us are impatient at lights, are frustrated about turn signals, are speeders. I mean, I could go on and on, and I'm only using the issue of cars because I think all of us are more prepared to cop to our aggressiveness behind the wheel than we are any other place. We don't want to have to admit that we're aggressive when it comes to our own homes. We don't want to admit we're aggressive towards our husbands. And yet, oh my goodness, you women, you think you hide it. (laughs) No, sorry, just no, (laughs) you know. Mary Lee and I talked to the high school students this week, and you know what we talked to them about? We talked to them about how an awful lot of the reason to get out of a home for high school students is they're tired of their parents fighting and want to get away from it. And then we said to them, and when you want to get away from your parents, you do love them. (laughs) You know, that's the interesting thing is they adore their parents, and that's why they can't stand them fighting. You know, isn't that interesting? Oh boy, that husband does so much as give the slightest direction to his almighty ever precious wife. And she instantly reminds him who he isn't. (laughs) And if you want to know who he isn't, it's everything. He's none of them. And she doesn't do it with any words. She just does it with the shape of her body. Oh, people that tell me they don't fight in their marriage, it makes me puke. I mean, really, it really, really makes me puke. If I have one more superior Christian who looks at me and says, we never fight, I think I'm going to just, I don't know, retire. You know, and, and the book that's coming out on marriage, in, in the chapter on fighting in a godly way, there's a chapter on that. I talk about that at the beginning. And so listen, what I want you to realize is you are just a normal Christian. That's who you are, and that's why you have to have these commands given to you. Okay? You're just normal. Okay? All right? Did the sons of Israel get along with each other as they wandered in the wilderness? Did they say nice things about their elder and pastor and prophet, Moses? Did the household and kingdom of David live at peace with one another under his leadership? Did the disciples live at peace with each other in the upper room those final hours of our Lord's life just before he was taken out and crucified? Did the first church in Jerusalem get along with one another in the matter of the distribution to their widows? Did Yodia and Syntyche agree with one another in the Lord? 
Oh my goodness. That's a direct quote from the book of Philippians, okay? That was the good church. He stops mid-sentence. By the way, you and Syntyche, I plead with you, agree with one another in the Lord. That's what he actually says. And it's the best church in the New Testament. And by the way, he names them. Should I name who I'm pleading with this morning by name? Should it be recorded so that all through church history they know who you are? Did the Judaizers get along with the Gentiles? Did the super apostles do good or evil to the apostle Paul? Did the apostle Paul and Barnabas get along with each other when it came to John Mark's work with them? Did the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter get along with each other when it came to the treatment of the Gentiles within the body of Christ? Did the Corinthians go to court against each other? Now, come on! So yes, of course, these commands apply to our relationships with unbelievers. But familiarity is what breeds content. And who are more familiar with each other than those who eat and sing and love and pray and work side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, familiarity breeds contempt. And contempt is the motive for returning evil for evil, for being at war with others. For not leaving vengeance to God, but taking revenge ourselves against those we despise and hate. Feed my enemy? Feed my enemy? Are you serious? I won't even look at him. No, I won't. Cannot stand the man. I cannot stand the woman. Give my enemy something to drink. Are you serious? I can't stand the sight of him. I ain't going to give him nothing. Respond to the evil he's done me by doing him good. <laughs> oh, get real, brother. You're delusional. I'm not going to let anybody push me around. After all, he does it to everyone. And if I don't show him who and what he is, who will? And if no one shows him who and what he is other than then just think about the timid and weak people who are, he's going to be blowing them over. And I, most holy I, will bear partial responsibility because I didn't return him evil for evil. Which was what he needed. I just did what was needed. I just did what will protect justice in this world by giving him what he deserved. All right, are you all with me? Come on. Come on, cop to this. All of you. 
cop to it. Other people might be sheep, but I'm not stupid. I see what's going on, and I won't shirk my duty to expose and to oppose it. And it goes on and on like this. We have a million reasons for refusing the Apostle Paul's commands. And yes, we know that the Apostle commands commands are only our Lord's commands. Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was say, said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we begin to listen and to obey these commands of our Lord and these commands of the Apostle Paul when we admit what the first verse of our text says explicitly. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never, I'm going to get really deep here. I'm going to get into ontology. Okay? This is like profound. Okay, ready? Never means never. And anyone means anyone. Our self-examination should start with our own wife or husband. Did you hear me? Our self-examination should start with our own wife or husband. <laughs> right? Isn't that helpful for me to say that? It gives you permission to examine whether you have adopted a posture towards your husband or your wife that is on any level aggressive and punitive and censorious. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and then once you're done, husband and wife, what about your parents, you children? All right, even you pretty children and handsome ones. And of course, then we move from the home into the church. You look at who you do and don't talk to in the foyer Sunday morning. You look at who you avoid when you go to small group. You look at your avoidance of small group. You look at your precious hurt feelings about wrongs that have been done 10 and 20 years ago. You say, well, I haven't taken vengeance and I haven't returned evil for their evil. And I say, oh, you haven't, huh? So how come you never do them any good? And you say, well, that would be a work of supererogation. That's something up with which I could not put. That would be to expect out of me an almost superhuman godliness. 
And listen, I say to you, yes, that's the point. Nobody is denying that the natural instinct of all of us is to keep score. Right? What is the definition of a rich man? I just thought this up. Right? What is the definition of a rich man? Well, a rich man is a man who is very, very good at keeping score. That's all a rich man is. Rich man doesn't have to get his pound of flesh emotionally. <laughs> because he gets it financially. Are you all with me? And he feels so superior to people that let their emotions show. <laughs> I mean, think about this. We all have our ways of making sure that we are never on the losing end. This week I heard that one of our former members is going to take a position doing family law. And the instant I heard that, I just went, oh, oh! Can you imagine being an attorney who makes his living off of family law? I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Because it's ground zero of every bit of revenge-seeking in a world that's run amok in terms of marriage and family life. And then inevitably you'll have a woman judge. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? And I say, I don't have time. So never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never to anyone. Not at work. Not in school. Not in the office. Not walking on the sidewalk. Not driving the car. Not at the dinner table. Not in the church foyer. Not on Kirkwood. Not on Facebook. Not on Instagram. Not on Twitter. And not in bed with your husband and wife. Is that clear enough for all of you? Then respect what is right in the sight of all men. And so what is this saying to us? Well, again, what I want to deal with you about is the way you're going to get, be a squirrel and try to find your way out of this. And so how are we weasels trying to get out of this command? Well, listen to it again. It says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, you know what this is saying. This is telling us the theme is peaceableness. So what this is saying is have 
a large heart towards the world. You, you understand that. In other words, what all men agree on, show yourself brotherly to all men. Show yourself ironic. Show yourself peaceable. Approve of what the world approves of. Be peaceable. I mean, you understand that's what it means, right? All men means all men. So now you know what it means, right? So how will we destroy it? <laughs> okay, there's a couple ways. One way is for the man who thinks he has a corner on being a peacemaker and being presentable and, and getting along with everybody. Not giving a rip about the truth of God and never taking the hatred of the world because he's the peacemaker. Is that what it's commanding? Is it commanding to get rid of God's truth so that you can show yourself to approve of what all men approve of? I mean, do you see how duplicitous we are? Do you see how we are consistently trying to make a show of giving God what he commands while we withhold it? This is not calling you to be the most accepting person in every environment. That is not a Christian. A Christian cannot escape the hostility of the world. That's what Jesus said. They hated me, they'll hate you too. And so it's not telling you that if you ever have people angry at you, that you failed because, well, after all, doesn't it say... Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Show yourself to be peaceable. Right? Okay, so we all understand that that's not what it's saying, right? Everybody with me? That's not what it's saying. Nope. This is not calling you superior because nobody's ever offended by you. Actually, you're, you're pathetic. Right? We were having pizza last night. We talked about you, Lisa. And it was positive. Because I'm telling you, you want to get truth. You want it from a Pittsburgh woman. Pittsburgh does a number on you that not many places in the country do to you. <laughs> you know? And so when it comes to God's truth, there should be a little of the Midwest and a little of Pittsburgh in all of us. But what is another way that we pervert this? Well, here's the other way. Listen to this. There is the wife who always undercuts her husband by doing him one better in her judgments of right and wrong. He approves of something and that automatically means she disapproves of that thing because she intends to show him that his sense of morals and right and wrong and good and bad and beautiful and ugly is inferior to hers. She is not feminine. She has no deference. She never meets a place where she submits to his preferences, let alone his principles. Because he's always, somehow, somewhere, wrong. And she, of course, is right. 
And we all know this is how it goes in some marriages, don't we? We could say the same about the relationship of some fathers with their son. It's hopeless because the son is always wrong. The father is perpetually able to point out his son's mistakes, his son's failures in character, his son's obvious stupidity. And we all know this goes on in some homes, don't we? This is not how we are to be with all men. We are not to be contrarians, thinking that's our gift to the world. It is not. We are God's representatives of reconciliation. This is not our gift to the world. This is our superiority complex. It is our pride. It is our lovelessness. It is our censorious spirit. Although, yes, certainly, we're very good at justifying it. But then we hear the second command of God in our passage this morning, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Just as God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, so he also sends perceptions of what is right to all men. Did you hear what I just said? Just as God sends sun on the good and evil, sends rain on the good and evil, so God also sends perceptions of what is right and wrong to those who are good and evil. And what this means is The Democrats are right in many ways. Do you really seriously think that the truth of God runs along the lines of two parties in the United States of America? And yet you realize that's been the moral of the last two years among the church people of America. We have spent the last two years condemning anybody who's in favor of masks. And you can separate the liberal and conservative churches by what they think about masks. This is hilarious. And the liberals are convinced that they're right and the conservatives are convinced they're right. And they divide over it. That's been... That has been the division of the church in the last two years. That's it. (laughs) You know, it's been fun to watch. And what you see is the absence of any love within the church of Jesus Christ. When you divide over mass, it's a pretty good indication that your fellowship and unity isn't real good. You know, will we all cop to that? I mean, it's just hilarious, you know? It's like your two teenage children sitting at the table fighting over a toothpick. This is stupid. God is pleased to humble the proud. And the church is proud. And I think part of what has gone on with COVID is God has humiliated the church in the eyes of the watching world.
You say, well, Pastor Bailey, obviously you're ignorant of all of the facts that I have gathered from the internet. And I say, yep, yep, I'll cop to that. There are a lot of things I'm ignorant of. I keep telling Stephen I'm ignorant on eschatology. Makes Stephen angry. I don't blame him. I shouldn't be ignorant. I am. I grew up in a church that fought over it. I don't want to fight over it. <laughs> you know? I just think, let's not spend another century fighting over eschatology. You know? Listen, people. He sends his reign on the just and unjust. He sends his son on the just and unjust. He sends his truth on the just and unjust. And if you will read through the annals of history, you will find again and again that God's people make mistakes that we look back in history and we see them. Okay? God's people have no corner on truths. God's people have scripture. But so often we take scripture and we argue as if because we have scripture, it makes us experts in epidemiology. I mean, seriously? I mean, seriously? And you say, well, there you go again, Tim. You're, you just don't know what I know. And I say, yeah, I know. I know I don't know. That's what I meant to say. I wasn't arguing with you. Now, listen. What you have to realize is that God is God and we are not. And that God's truth is higher than the heavens are above the earth. And that God often does things to this world that are incomprehensible to us. Okay? We cannot understand what his purposes are. And so when we set up the last two years to be all about President Trump and the election and, and the mainstream media and all this stuff. Do you really think that God needs you interpreting history like a prophet? Do you, I mean, honestly, do you think that the Democrats have a corner on stealing elections? Come on. Have you read any history? You know, do you think that the Democrats have any corner on killing the unborn children? Do you have any idea how many unborn children we have killed by using hormonal birth control? And all of a sudden you're all like, hey, wait a second, we're opposed to surgical abortions. We don't talk about birth control. I say, yeah, yeah, you want me stupid, don't you? I won't do it. And I haven't been doing it for yay this many years. <laughs> Listen, you guys, God is God. You are not. God does not need you to be censorious in this world. God needs you to be reconciling the world to him. God needs you to have an expansive heart that's expansive as much as Jesus was who while he was on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they... Come on. Come on. They know not what they do. 
Isn't that beautiful? As a sheep before the shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Did Jesus get his pound of flesh? Oh. <laughs> well, we were his enemies. He died for us. Can we not love our enemies? Can we not stop condemning everybody starting with our husband? Can we not live at peace? I'll try to end now. I could keep going a long time. Do any of you doubt that? If you do, I'll prove to you. I'll try to bring it to an end now. Do you notice the text goes on? It talks about heaping burning coals. And I want to make this point about that and tell you that when Rita Cuffey was alive, she was the older woman that met with me every week for a period of probably, how many years would it have been? At least 10. She was a godly older woman, uh, and she would pray for me. We'd meet every week. And she knew that I had trouble reading my Bible and praying because she'd ask me what to pray for. And every week I'd say, would you pray that I would have devotions? And so very quickly she caught on that there was something she could help me with. And so she would write out somewhere around 15 to 20 pages of scripture every week, longhand, hand them to me when she came in the office and say, now you just read this. And then when you get done reading this, then we can talk. And that was her way of making sure that at least one day a week I read a large portion of scripture. <laughs> so I'd sit there and read. Well, after years and years of this, I would get so that I knew what her favorite passages of scripture were. And do you know, this might have been her favorite. It was certainly one of the top three. You ready for this? Listen to it. It's Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your hearts be glad when he stumbles, or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. <laughs> now, this is a proverb that has a barb. You know? I mean, who in the right mind would think that Proverbs would end with that statement? You know? Don't go after your enemy because then the Lord will stop having him as his enemy. And the Lord will do a better job getting back at him than you ever could. That's the meaning of heaping coals of fire on its head. That's the meaning of it reminding us that vengeance is God's. Listen, you don't want to repay evil for evil because when you do that, you have become evil. You've gone to the dark side. It is not your prerogative to get back at people. That's God's. When you try to get back at people, you are playing God, and you are usurping God's privilege. And that's a serious thing. Now, one application of this to those of you who are like me. I've thought a lot about this, and I've realized in the last five or ten years that one way that I am always wanting to commit vengeance or whatever you say, is by 
getting the last word in, in an argument. Now, you might say, well, it's an argument, so you should win. But, you know, I've noticed that there comes a point in an argument where the goal is no longer trying to find the truth. Arguments are good for finding the truth. But there comes a point where the goal becomes to kill the other guy. And I don't mean literally kill him. What I mean is making it clear to everybody listening and to him himself that you just, you know that Monty Python skit, right? Well, that's where my argument falls to the ground. I was certainly hoping you wouldn't make that particular point, but I can see that you're more than a match for me. You know, that is vengeance. You whooped up. And your purpose was whooping up. And showing yourself to be the victor. That is vengeance. Always stop in your arguments prior to having unconditional surrender. Okay? Do you, do you understand this? Don't go for the blood. Go for the truth. I'm not against arguments, but don't go for the blood. Okay. Now, I want to say one other thing. It then goes on, after telling us not to take God's perquisites from him, his privileges of vengeance, it says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heat burning coals on his head. Then it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now listen. It's not enough for you to avoid hunking the horn at the roundabout. Okay? It's not enough for you to bite your tongue when your husband's an idiot. Or, or when he hurts you. Okay? Let's, let's put it like that. You are commanded by God to respond by giving your husband food, by giving him water, by you are commanded by God to do good to your wife. Okay? Now, let me ask you, how many of you are naturally inclined to do that? When your wife hurts you in front of other people, how many of you are naturally inclined to respond by doing her good? Come on. Anybody? Any hand? No one? Why? Because that's, that's just like completely ludicrous. Nobody does that. Nobody responds to people hurting them by doing them kindness. And if he does, it's to show that he wasn't hurt. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's to show his superiority, these stupid people that try to hurt him. He can't be hurt. But I mean, honestly, to do, eh, 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 what, do they say, uh, what do they say on the bumper sticker? Uh, random acts of kindness. You know? To somebody who just hurt you, let alone your wife. <laughs> no, 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 just no. Now, listen. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? All the commentators here say that there is no clearer mark of the fruit of the Holy Spirit than doing good to your enemies. All of them say it's unbelievably difficult. And all of them say, pray for it and act. Because what better way to resist 
vengeance and to resist bitterness and to resist all those evil things that bark at our door every moment of every day. What better way of putting them to death than to do a positive act of kindness? I mean, you talk about dying. And then hiding it, that would be even worse. You know, doing kindness and having nobody know but God. Right, 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 right. Okay, I'm done. Are you all still here? You okay? You okay? Come on. You okay? Because you know what we're going to do next. (laughs) We're going to take communion. And we should not take communion while we're holding and cherishing bitterness and anger towards each other. So now, are you all okay? Uh Uh-oh. Can we take communion? You know, I was thinking about this the last service, and I want to say to you, as I leave this platform, if you wait until your repentance is perfect and you feel good about your repentance, you will never come to God and you will never come to the Lord's table. Ask God to give you repentance for your envy, your bitterness, your anger, for your revenge. Just ask him. Ask him to, to take it from you. Don't wait until tomorrow to come to the Lord's table. Don't wait. I told you I was going to say one more thing. I have one more thing to say. You all know I've got a big mouth, right? Does everybody know this? Everybody knows I've got a big mouth. Did you hear me? Because you're not giving me any response, and you should all be saying, ha, 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 yep. And so often, I do get a pound of flesh from people I'm talking to. And it's been my sin, my life. But you know what I, I, I've noticed as I've gotten older is the improvement in my life has been I've, I've gotten quicker at saying I'm sorry. And so that's what I want to hold out to you is I want to say to you, if you realize this morning that you have something on your heart that you don't like and that it's not good, would you please just forget about yourself and say you're sorry. There's no time in a man's life that he is more certain of God's mercy to him than when he says he's sorry. Not with a but. No buts. No buts. I'm sorry, but. No, 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 no. That's not sorry. <laughs> okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for sinners. Father, I plead with you to give us in our homes and our marriages, here in the church, here in the university community, I plead with you to give us the respect and love of our neighbors who are unbelievers and of one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name.